Abraham, Moses, King David, Isaiah, Peter, the Roman Empire, the Great Schism of 1054, the Protestant Reformation. How do you explain Christianity to someone who has no idea what anything I just mentioned means? We heard a reading from the book of Acts this morning, and it's one of my favorite sections of scripture. It's not particularly long, but it's deep, it's rich, it's important. Uh, Part of my master's thesis, I focused on this selection. And we find here an answer to that question. What is this Christianity thing? How do you explain it to someone who's entirely brand new to its concepts? Uh, The speaker in what we read this morning is a man named Paul, one of the first Christian missionaries. He started some of the very earliest Christian churches 2,000 years ago while traveling around the Roman Empire. And in the selection we're reading, he's speaking in a public meeting in in the city of Athens. This Greek city that still exists today had already existed for more than 2,000 years before Paul visited it. But the people there knew nothing about the Bible, nothing about Bible history, didn't know the name Jesus. So Paul starts from scratch. That's what makes this particular message, this selection from Acts, so interesting. It's helpful to know who Paul is. It's helpful to know something about Athens, this place where he's preaching, and the Greek culture of Athens. But you don't need that necessarily, because what Paul does here is explain Christianity with as little context necessary as possible. Uh, He starts off with an interesting remark here in Acts chapter 17, verse 22. People of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. The first thing Paul does in his speech is find sort of a connection point, or call it a bridge, from his worldview to that of his audience. And the connection he finds is that he worships something, and they worship something. Everyone worships. Every person may worship something different, but everyone worships something. This is a connection point that Paul decides to use. In English, we hear that word worship, and we usually attach sort of a specifically religious meaning to it. But this Greek word that Paul uses here, oisabaya, doesn't have to mean religious worship. Paul uses this same word in another part of the Bible in his first letter to Timothy when he writes that people should show oisabaya toward their parents. Oisabaya simply means reverence or profound respect. Paul walked around Athens and found that the Athenians practiced oisabaya, reverence and respect, toward every god or deity or spirit anyone shared with them. They wanted to show reverence toward any power which might be over them. So when Paul builds this bridge to his audience, it's a helpful point where we can stop and consider what bridges he might build if he were sharing his message with us today. If Paul wanted to figure out what we worship as Long Islanders, what would his conclusion be? Would he drive around and conclude that we worship pleasure? With so many good restaurants, so many home renovation companies, so many new kitchens being put in constantly, would he conclude that we worship status? Always in our conversations comparing school districts and comparing neighborhoods and comparing our cars to the ones driving by, what cultural worship would Paul use to build his bridge to us? The Athenians were so conscientious about their worship that Paul found an interesting altar. It was dedicated to an unknown god. The Athenians were making sure to cover all their bases. So Paul uses that bridge, verse 23. You are ignorant, he says, of the very thing you worship. 
which is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. The Athenians wanted to make sure that they worshipped all these gods because they didn't want to accidentally offend any particular deity and risk becoming the objects of its anger. So they had this, this special idol altar set aside there where they could say if, you know, if a new god showed up one day and was angry that the Athenians hadn't been worshipping it, they could say, no, 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 that's where we were worshipping you. What's your name? Great, we'll give, you a, we'll give you one with your name on it now. Paul therefore tells them about a deity that they would certainly not want to offend. A deity who rules all the world and indeed who made all the world. That combination is important. Paul says that the maker God is the ruler God, the Lord. See, the Greeks were familiar with the idea of a maker. Their maker God was the formless chaos. But in their myths, other gods arose from chaos and eventually a god named Zeus beat out the other contenders to become king of the gods. Zeus, the highest of the sort of actively involved in the world gods, was not the maker. He was a fighter. Chaos was, in a sense, the maker, the source of the world, but he was not a personal maker. He was not a, a power that actively involved itself in the world. The Greeks believed in a world where the powers above them were constantly fighting one another for influence and did not particularly care about the people beneath them. The god Paul proclaims to the Athenians is very different. He does not have to fight his way to the top. He has always existed as the top dog. And he involves himself in the world he made. He isn't like chaos, some formless, distant power. Paul goes on, This god himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. See, the Greeks believed that their gods gave gifts. The Greek myths are full of gifts given from the gods to humans. Impenetrable armor winged sandals, god-killing swords, but these gifts were always given to further the aims of the gods. When you read the Greek myths, you see that the, the Greek gods used humans in the same way that the United States and Russia used other countries during the Cold War. Right? We gave gifts, we sent weapons and arms to, to this or that nation so that they could fight against this or that neighbor that was allied to the enemy. The gifts of the Greek gods were like that. They were always meant to serve their own ends. They were meant to help the, the, themselves gain more influence, more status, without necessarily provoking a direct confrontation with another god. But the god whom Paul explains gives gifts to people simply out of generosity, out of grace. He doesn't give gifts for his own benefit. Indeed, there's nothing humans can do that would profit him. Paul says that this God does not live in temples built by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. This is a God entirely unlike the one the Athenians worshipped. They worshipped gods who belonged to particular people groups, but this God, Paul says, made all the nations from one man. And now Paul builds another connecting bridge to the Athenians. In verse 28, he quotes from two Greek poets, Epimenides, who said, in God we live and move and have our being. And Aratus, who said, We are God's offspring. See, the Athenians understood that they lived under the rule of powers above. They believed that their gods often interacted with people, that their gods would choose certain groups to support and protect. But Paul uses these two quotations to identify a deeper yearning in the human heart. We don't want to simply be ruled over by faceless powers above us, right? We don't want 
the God who rules us to be something like a king or a president, right? A, a remote and distant ruler who makes decisions that impact our lives, but with whom we have no relationship. We want a relationship. We want to know our God. We want to be known by our God. Paul says that yearning expressed by these poets is answered in knowing this God. We don't just live under his rule, we live in his love. We aren't his subjects, we are his children. Here's another point to stop and ask what bridge Paul might use to connect with us. A few of you got a text from me this last week asking what the last song you'd listen to was. What do the poets you listen to tell you? And interestingly, the songs I got back from that question all spoke of uh, regret. It was interesting. All these songs spoke of past mistakes, decisions, as things we can't move past, as if we were unavoidably defined by our past actions. Is that idea part of your worldview, that you can't move past your past? Paul might use that as a bridge. The past does matter, but Paul might build his bridge this way. Your past actions, their impact, their consequences, these things matter. But God's actions matter as well, have an impact as well. God's actions do move you past your past. Paul's message kind of shifts tone here as he engages with the Athenians in this this really personal way when he's building the second bridge. Those Greek poets taught that we should want to know God, so Paul says now, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Paul means here, if this yearning we have to have a relationship with God is to be answered, we need to know who he is. We can't invent a God. We are his offspring. We should know who our father is. God overlooked such ignorance in the past, Paul says, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Here's the essentially Christian part of Paul's message, the essentially Christian claim that he's going to make. Because up until this point, he's been sort of building bridges again over to the Athenian worldview from his own, and now he's inviting them to cross that bridge into his. He makes this claim that he knows what the one true God wants. What makes this claim essentially Christian? One, it's universal. The Greeks were familiar with gods who had claims over this or that nation, over this or that part of life, a sea god, a trickster god, a war god. Paul says this God rules over all of that, over all people, over the lives of all people. And this universal claim made Christianity unique in the ancient world. But more uniquely Christian than that is the idea that all people need to repent. Repent means to turn away with remorse from a wrong action and engage in the proper action. What is the action away from which God wants all people to turn? From not knowing him. Instead, all people should know him. Another way to express this, people should turn from not believing in God, from not trusting in him, and instead believe in him, trust in him. All people, Paul says again, this idea is unique to Christianity, that everyone needs knowledge of God and acquires that through repentance. Babies need to know God. Senior citizens need to know God. Rich and poor need to know God. People of every race need to know God. Crucially, both people we might consider good and people we might consider evil need to know God. 
Again, Paul is preaching the absolute bare essentials of Christianity here. And so he doesn't go into sort of what we might think of in an extended discussion of sin. This message that Paul preaches here in Acts 17 is not a complete teaching on the Christian life. As we get into Christianity and what it is, we learn that God does intend for humans to live in a particular way, which we often summarize with the Ten Commandments. Right? Examples. Don't steal. Be sexually faithful to one spouse. Speak true words. Be content with what God gives. And to sin, ultimately, is to disobey any of those commands. But all sins are rooted in one sin. Unbelief. Not knowing God. Ignorance of God is the particular sin, Paul tells the Athenians, Paul tells us, away from which God commands that all people turn. This is a different teaching than that which exists in any other religion. Islam, for instance, teaches that unless you actively reject its message, you may be saved along with faithful Muslims. If you genuinely never had a chance to hear his message, then Allah will test you on Judgment Day and weigh your good deeds against your bad. The Baha'i faith teaches that the Maker God has set some rules about what is right and what is wrong, but when you die, rather than judgment, your soul will progress through a spiritual plane that leads you over the course of eternity toward perfection. Christianity teaches something a whole lot simpler. All the sins which the Baha'i believe you must be cleansed of in the afterlife. All the sins which Islam teaches Allah will use to judge your life. All those sins were paid for by the death of a single man appointed by God. Here's how Paul closes out his message. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising this man from the dead. This appointed man, Paul speaks of, we know, is Jesus. These people, of course, in Athens didn't know this Jesus person, this Jewish carpenter rabbi, who had been killed on a cross just 20 years before Paul's speech there. But Paul says, this man constitutes the basis on which God will judge people. He will judge them by Jesus. This is the simple teaching of Christianity. Either we believe that we are sinners and that our sin was paid for through God's loving mercy by Jesus' death, or we don't, and God will judge on that basis and on no other. These are big claims. The proof of it all, Paul says, is a single event, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And this also makes Christianity entirely unique. It's falsifiable. If someone can find Jesus' bones, Christianity falls apart. The Baha'i faith is not falsifiable in the same way. There's no claim of a resurrection. There's no way to verify if someone's soul is off progressing through this spiritual plane after their death. That's not falsifiable. Islam is not falsifiable. Muhammad claimed that he received revelation from God. There's no way to test that. Buddhism is not falsifiable. Shintoism is not falsifiable. Mormonism is not falsifiable. But Christianity made a very particular, falsifiable claim its core. Either Jesus rose or he didn't. And that's still the claim that Christians make. Jesus rose. And it's only the resurrection of Jesus on which the whole thing hangs. Jesus was crucified for all sin and innocent sacrifice. Then God raised him. And God promises that your sin is forgiven because of Jesus. And now he calls you into the same sort of life which Jesus led. A life in which we're prepared to suffer for doing what is good. A life which rejects the materialism and the selfishness of the culture around us and instead 
a life that we live for others, not for ourselves. A life which doesn't look to find meaning in the things of this world, but instead looks to the promise of life forever. That's Christianity. Amen.